most of you were not here at my last session, and so I need to put this in a context so that you'll know why I'm approaching this topic the way I am. My first talk was about um, why God created the universe, and the answer was uh, to uphold and display his glory for the maximum enjoyment of his redeemed people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So his glory upheld and displayed for the enjoyment of his people. All of it reaching its apex, its highest, most decisive, most beautiful point of display in the suffering of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, to save millions of hell-deserving people. So all of the universe, all the suffering in the universe, all the events of the universe serve the magnifying of the grace of God in the suffering of Jesus Christ. And we will make Christ crucified, slain for us, the centerpiece of our worship forever and ever and ever. Now, that's the stage that has been set for the question, what's wrong with us? What is our depravity, which is the theme or the question for tonight? I was preaching a couple of years ago in a park in Minneapolis, and I spent a significant time talking about the exceeding sinfulness of my own heart, the heart of my people, and the heart of everybody. And a woman from our church came up to me afterwards, and she said a woman next to her had whispered, you don't really believe that, do you? You don't really believe that, do you? People find it hard to believe that we Christians think we're as bad as the Bible says that we are. And there's an irony to that. The 20th century, as you know, was the bloodiest century in the history of the world. Not just because there was a Holocaust with its six million Jews slaughtered in Germany, but because there were probably 60 million killed by Stalin across the Soviet Union. I read a biography about Alexander Solzhenitsyn and what I learned about the effects of the Russian regime was simply breathtaking. Tenfold the Holocaust in those mid-century years. And then there was Mao Zedong and the millions killed under his regime in China. And then there was perhaps 20% of the population of Cambodia wiped out under Pol Pot. And then there were 800,000 Tutsis slaughtered in Rwanda. And of course, there have been 40 million unborn babies killed in my country since Roe v. Wade in 1973. And then there was World War I and World War II and countless other smaller wars. And still, there are people who say that human beings are basically good and the need of the hour is education. And, and my observation is that the meaning of the 20th century is that uneducated people have no corner on depravity. It was the century of mega educational murderers. They were the most educated people and slaughtered the most people. It, it is it's amazing. It's one of the wonders of, of history that humans can go on thinking we're good. But that's in fact what they think. I want to affirm something that Mark Driscoll said last night. I want to affirm 
everything that Mark Driscoll said last night. But one thing in this regard, do you remember that point in the message, those of you who are here, where he talked about how the 20-somethings in Seattle are willing to be spoken to straight about certain things. And one of the things he mentioned was their sinfulness. And he looks at people and he says, you know, in all of your problems, the unvarying common denominator is you. In other words, that kind of blunt, straight talk seems not to drive at least a lot of people away. And when I was thinking about that this afternoon, it reminded me of of this testimony from um, Joseph D'Agostino, who is a conservative, unbelieving writer for Human Events magazine in Dallas. And he wrote this, Protestantism is a joke. The evangelical right is faith without intellect. The left is intellect without faith. Catholicism fares little better. It seems so soft. At some point, you either go with Aristotle or you go with Jesus. That's that. Reason can only take you so far. My problem is I just don't have faith. In the end, I have not accepted by faith that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. You see... I don't think it's the church's job to hold polite dialogues with the world. The church's job is to give people the answers that Christians have lived and died for to defend through the ages. If I'm going to convert, that's what will convert me. The real thing. Close quote. So Mark is on to something. Straight talk. The real thing. No pussy footing around about this issue in particular. We are depraved. We're depraved. So my challenge in this message is, what is it? What is it? What's wrong with us? Let me give you my definition and then we'll spend the rest of the time unpacking it and defending it. I'm after... The, the essence, a lot of things you can say about human sinfulness, corruption, wickedness, bentness, fallenness. But what's the heart of it? What's the essence of our problem? If you dig as deep as you can dig, what do you run into at the bottom? Here's my effort. The inner essence of our depravity depravity is our preferring, and that's going to be a very, very operative and crucial word, our preferring the glory of created things over the glory of God. The essence of our depravity is our deep preference, our deep preferring of created things the glory of created things, the value of creative things, the satisfying nature of created things, the joy of created things, the pleasure of created things, the significance of created things over the glory of God. Such that we are blind and insensible to the infinitely preferable glory of God. God's glory is infinitely to be preferred over everything. And everyone, wife, husband, children, mother, father, brother, sister, job, ministry, Bible. God is infinitely to be preferred over everything. And we Don't feel it. Now, question. Why define the essence of our depravity in those terms? Why define depravity as a preferring of created things over God? Why not define it other 
ways. For example, why don't you go to 1 John 3, 4, where it says that sin is lawlessness. There's a good biblical definition of sin. Sin is lawlessness. Let's go to 1 John, because I have a few things I want you to see there. So if you have a Bible, turn there. If you don't, you can just listen. That's okay. 1 John. And I just quoted a piece of chapter 3, verse 4. And I'm asking myself, why did you give that kind of definition about preferring, treasuring, cherishing, being satisfied with, taking delight in created glory, not divine glory. Why are you going there? Why are you doing it that way when the Bible, for example, in 1 John 3, 4, says everyone, I'm sorry, 1 John 3, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is Lawlessness. So why don't you just say it that way? And there are at least four reasons, and they're very helpful, illuminating to me. Number one, the first commandment of the law is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Soul, mind, strength, but not less than heart. So the first commandment, if you're going to define the essence of sin as lawlessness, is what law are you talking about and what does it mean to break it? And the first one is love him with all your heart. What does that look like to break it? It means not to prefer him. To love God is to prefer God over everything. So I'm back to my definition. Even if I start with sin is lawlessness. You might say, but but you're assuming something. You're assuming that loving God means preferring him, delighting in him, being satisfied in him, rejoicing in him. Cherishing him, treasuring him. You're assuming all that kind of affectional heart movement toward him. Doesn't Jesus say in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I have heard that verse used so many times to say to love is to obey. That's precisely what it does not say. Right? It says, if you love me, something else happens. Obedience. So what's this? And the answer is, it's preferring him above everything. He who loves mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. If I don't mean more to you than your mother and your father and your son and your daughter, you can't follow me. So if you feel that about me, you'll obey me. Don't equate obedience with this. It's a fruit. So that's my first reason for why I'm moving in the direction I'm moving in defining depravity, not just staying at the law level. Here's my second reason. Turn to chapter 5 of this epistle. See what else he says. 1 John 5. And my second observation is, I start with the heart and the definition of depravity as not preferring God not being satisfied in God, not delighting in God, delighting in everything else above God. I start there because it is possible that all the laws can be broken while doing them. Now, you'll see that in this, these three verses. First John 5, 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. 
And everyone who loves the Father loves whomever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. This is the love of God that we keep his commandments and... You stopped right there. You said, oh, that's different than what you said. But listen, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. Ah, so if loving God means keeping his commandments and they are not burdensome, then you can keep them begrudgingly and be totally disobedient. You can go to your Bible. Get out your Ten Commandments or other 620 whatever and list them and just gut out whatever obedience you can and totally be in disobedience because they're not supposed to be burdensome. Well, what would make them not burdensome? Preferring God, delighting in God, treasuring God, esteeming God, valuing God, being satisfied in God. That's why I'm there. Number three. Jeremiah 2.13. I'll just quote it for you. You This is a very important verse. I won't quote it for you. Let's go there. This is so important. I want you to lay your eyes on it if you have a Bible. Isaiah, Jeremiah, chapter 2. Big books in the Old Testament are not hard to find. Little ones are hard to find. This is a big one. Jeremiah, chapter 2, verse 13 may come as close as anything in the Bible to defining evil the way I'm defining it, the heart of it. Jeremiah 2.13, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What is the definition of depravity in that verse? What is evil? My people have committed two evils. Here they are. Number one, they have put their lips to the fountain of life and spit it out. Yuck. That's God. Have turned to the dirt. And have scraped and scraped and scraped to make a cistern that will hold muddy water. And they've put their mouths to it and said, that's satisfying. That is the nature of our depravity. That's who we are. We're born this way. Everybody in this room is that way by nature. We do not prefer God, the fountain of all beauty. We prefer alternatives, created things, you name it. Wife, husband, job, health, retirement, sex, drink, drugs, workaholism, success, name it. Doesn't matter what it is, and most of them are good and wickedly good because they're idols. They are alternatives to God. That's the nature of depravity. We prefer broken cisterns over the fountain of living water. That's the meaning, the deepest meaning of our wickedness. That's the third reason I'm saying it the way I'm saying it rather than just staying at the law level. And here's the fourth and last one. Let's go to John chapter 3. This is the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in the New Testament, chapter 3. And I just want to put some vocabulary on this dynamic, namely love-hate vocabulary, not choice vocabulary. So much in evangelicalism, at least historically, has been defined in terms of decisions and choices And our religion becomes something we choose, and then we do our sanctification by what we choose, 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 as though there were no reality underneath all these choices, inclining our hearts. 
So here's Jesus, chapter 3 of John, verses 19 to 21. Listen to this. This is the judgment that light has come into the world. So there's God arriving, the light of the world, Jesus. Light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. So mark this now. The reason they're not coming to the the light is not that they're choosing. They're loving. That's why they're not coming. They're loving the darkness. And then you hear more. Verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. That's why they're not coming. They love darkness. They hate light. This is a vocabulary that is far deeper than mere choices. The work of the ministry, pastors, is impossible. Just settle it. You're not mainly about getting your people to make choices. I don't like book titles like Love is a Choice. The main thing we're after is stop loving the world. Stop hating the light. Have a total revolution of your affectional deep soul so that you love the light and hate the dark. That's not a mere choice. That's a change. It's called new birth. It's called sanctification. It's a miracle. It's a work of God. You can't make it happen, which is why the ministry is impossible. Which is why we're always desperate. Which is why we're on our faces. Which is why we pray. Which is why we're totally hopeless in Canada or America without the almighty work of the Holy Spirit. Depravity is just so deep. You can't just decide not to be depraved. To keep reading, everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been wrought in God or carried out by God. But that's another sermon to go further there to God's way of doing it. You know, this sequence, John, that you've given me, which I love, um, has a piece missing, doesn't it? The goal of creation, the nature of depravity, then we leapfrog over the work of Christ and the objective means of salvation to the nature of faith. Well, I won't leapfrog over it. I will, like I did this morning, I'll try to keep that before me. But this is all seamless, so I hope, I hope you're thinking with me in the seam. So I've tried to address the question, why are you defining depravity in terms of we prefer the glory of created things, almost anything, over the glory of God? That's the way we're wired, we prefer, we delight in, we take pleasure in, we're inclined toward, we treasure created things more than God. God is sort of done. You do it on Sunday. But Monday to Friday, we're driven by what we like. And it isn't him. Unless something miraculous happens. Now, here's the next question. What is the relationship between depravity and the glory of God as the ultimate goal of God in creation? So now the connection between the message from this morning and, or, yeah, this morning, (laughs) and this message on depravity. Let's go to Romans chapter 3. Everybody who wants to share the gospel, and you should all want to share the gospel, should have a simple outline memorized of the basics of the gospel. I've been teaching my little girl, Talitha, how to share her testimony because she professed faith two years ago. She's 11 now, three years ago, and she's going to be baptized, Lord willing, in May. And we, she and I have gone to a five-hour class together taught by one of our pastors and she'll be giving her testimony to the elders which is very intimidating on the 28th this next saturday maybe two saturday saturday week and uh and the outline that we've worked on is god sin christ faith that's the outline of the gospel you just need to turn them into sentences 
And on the sin piece, God is great and holy and created us for his glory. We've all failed and sinned. Christ died for our sins. Trust him and you're saved. I mean, that's, that's the gospel. And it's simple. An 11-year-old can say it profoundly. But on this second piece of sin, this is the verse most people memorize, right? Romans 3.23. But look what Paul does here. All have sinned. And almost all the English versions say, fall short of the glory of God. So Paul explicitly makes the connection between depravity and the glory of God. That's why I'm making the connection. That's why I started this morning where I started. Or why this thing is developing the way it's developing. Sin is a falling short of the glory of God. But what this word falls short. Greek word, hystereo, lack, to lack. So translated literally, all have sinned and lack the glory of God. Well, what does that mean? It surely doesn't mean we should be God. We should have as much glory as God has. What is, in what sense do all people lack the glory of God? And my answer is, that Romans 1.23 defines the meaning of Romans 3.23. Easy to remember. 1.23 defines 3.23. So let's go there. Romans 1.23. Start at 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God, the glory of the immortal God for... Creation, images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, reptiles, what you see in the mirror, etc. Do you see the word exchange? They exchange the glory of God. Is it okay if I say prefer? They consider the glory of God and they, they take it to the pawn shop. And they exchange it for a reptile. And thus they lack it. They don't have it anymore. That's what I think Romans 3.23 means. All have sinned and lack the glory of God, meaning all have sinned and exchanged the glory of God. All have sinned and traded it away. All have sinned and preferred other things to God. Now, to, to make that go home, let's just follow Paul here in Romans 1. Go back up. You're familiar with this to verse 19. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Why? What did they do? Verse 21. For although they knew God, they knew that he was infinitely to be preferred over all created things. What did they do? They did not... The word should be glorify him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and they exchanged it. So they saw, they knew God's objective revelation was in front of them in redemptive history for some, in natural revelation for all. And when they saw it, they suppressed the knowledge Verse 19, verse 18. They suppressed it. I don't want to have to be in love with one who makes me, rules me, owns me. No, I will be God, not see God and love God and submit to God and enjoy God. I will decide like Adam and Eve, this fruit is wise and to be preferred. I'm going to eat this, not enjoy God. That's who you are and who I am. Women and men, little boys and little girls, so sweet, so kind, and so wicked. Beautiful women, wicked. Handsome men, gentle, 
wicked. Wicked, they don't hurt anybody. They just don't prefer God over everything. And you can see it by the way they run their lives. He's marginal. So if you trace the argument of Romans 1, you bump into a couple more verses. Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator rather than the creator. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So they exchange. They know the truth. It's been revealed to them. They suppress it. They exchange it. Now, creature, we worship you. We love you. We cherish you. We bow down to you. We build our lives around you, God, marginal, you central. You money central. You video machine central. You DVD, you computer central. You money central. You sex central. God, marginal. Or, verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. Now, there, there's a paraphrase. Let me give you the literal rendering. They did not approve to have God in their knowledge. That's a literal way to translate verse 28. They did not approve to have God in their knowledge. And so he gave them up to a debased, could say depraved, depraved mind. So what is depravity? It is considering the knowledge of God as infinitely to be desired and saying, I don't want to infinitely desire him. I do not infinitely desire him. I desire something else, more. That's depravity. So, to reaffirm, depravity at its essence is preferring, valuing, cherishing, treasuring, finding satisfaction in the glory of the created thing above the glory of God. Family, work, toys, friends, food, home, praise of man, sex, money, fame, achievement, you name it, anything but God we prefer. Why is that so serious? The reason it's so serious is because it contradicts the ultimate, those of you who are here this morning will know what I'm talking about, the ultimate boule of God. Boule, the Greek word for purpose, intention, will, counsel. The ultimate plan, purpose, intention of God is to uphold and display his glory for the maximum enjoyment of his redeemed people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. This depravity says no to that purpose. You know, there's a name for that. It's called treason. And it is worthy of infinite punishment. Called hell, which is where all of us should be for how little we love God. Why is the failure to enjoy God so serious? Why is it a threat to his glory? I've implied that it is by the way I've defined his goal. His goal is to display his glory, his infinitely valuable, for the maximum everlasting enjoyment of his people. Why is the failure to do that because we're so depraved, we prefer other things. Why is the failure to do that a threat, an attack on his glory? Well, it's not because when we fail to delight in him, we contradict half of his purpose. Like, His purpose is to be glorified and his purpose is to be enjoyed. We're failing on the joy piece, so we we get 50% on this grade, on this test. That's not the case. 
When you fail to do this one, you attack this one and don't do it either. But there's an assumption there, isn't there? And here's the assumption. It's the most important statement of my theology, probably. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. And if you give up on being satisfied in him and move away to be satisfied in other things, you don't succeed at half of his purpose. You fail at all of his purpose because he is not honored by you. He's debased, discredited by you when you prefer broken cisterns to the fountain that he is. Now, I think I need to show this. I can't assume it. Most of you are familiar with the Westminster Catechism, question number one. What is man's chief end? And the answer, we all know. In fact, let's just all say it together. Man's chief end is to glorify God. Wonderful. You all get an A, unless you didn't answer. Now, the question is, what's the relationship between those two things? Because that's a beautiful way to start a catechism. The chief end of man, I argued this morning, it was the chief end of God. To glorify himself and to enjoy himself in the enjoyment of his people. But now it's just saying, our chief end is to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Now, my little rhyming, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him, means that I'm taking the word and to mean by. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Am I warranted in doing that historically and biblically? Those are the two questions I'd like to answer. Historically, I printed out here a page or two of B.B. Warfield on this question. The works of Warfield, I think about four volumes or so. And in one of them, he's got some commentary on the Westminster Catechism. And on the first question, here's what he writes. And he comes so close, (laughs) but doesn't quite get it right. I think he gets it right, but he doesn't say it right. (laughs) Edward says it right, but we'll be there in a minute. Delight in God, enjoyment of God. This is the recurrent refrain of all of Augustine's speech of God. Delight in God here, enjoyment of God forever. The distinction of the opening question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism is that it moves on this high plane and says all this in the compressed compass of the felicitous words, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Not to enjoy God, certainly, without glorifying him, for how can he to whom glory inherently belongs be enjoyed without being glorified? but just as certainly not to glorify God without enjoying him. For how can he whose glory is his perfections in his perfections be glorified if he be not also enjoyed? And he doesn't say precisely how they relate. He just says you can't have one without the other. Amen so far. He comes even closer On this paragraph, the reformed conception, I would say the biblical conception, I hope, pray, believe. The reformed conception is not fully or fairly stated if it be so stated that it may seem to be satisfied with conceiving of man merely as the object on which God manifests his glory, possibly even the passive object in which through which The divine glory is secured. No, no. It conceives man. The reformed conception conceives man also as the subject in which the gloriousness of God is perceived and delighted in. No man is truly reformed. 
I would say biblical. No man is truly reformed or biblical in his thought then unless he conceives of men not merely as destined to be the instrument of the divine glory, but also as destined. Here it comes. This is as close as he gets. As destined to reflect the glory of God in his own consciousness to exult in God. I'll paraphrase that. He's saying you don't think rightly about God if you don't think of him not merely as an instrument of the glorification of God, but as one who reflects that glory in his own consciousness. That's as close as he gets to saying, if you don't delight in God, you commit treason. You're not glorifying him. You're against his glory if you don't delight in him above other things. Now, that's as close as he gets. Jonathan Edwards nails it. Jonathan Edwards wrote a book called The End for Which God Created the World. Most important book I've ever read outside the Bible, probably. Shaped everything I think about because it put me in touch with the biblical teaching about the ultimate reason for why God created the world, which I've been talking about. And here's what he says. This is one of the most important paragraphs I've ever read in my 61 years. So God glorifies himself toward the creatures in two ways. One, by appearing to their understanding in communicating himself to their hearts and in their rejoicing and delighting and enjoying the manifestations he makes of himself. And here's the sentence I have underlined. God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. There it is. All I do is make it rhyme. I'll say it again. God is glorified not only by his glories being seen, that is, apprehended and understood, but God is glorified by its being rejoiced in. Now, who cares what Edwards and Warfield say? We care very much about what Paul says and about what Jesus says. So let's go to Philippians chapter 1. I think those guys are right because I think they're Bible-saturated. And when you're Bible-saturated, you intuit a lot of things rightly, and you say a lot of things rightly, even when you're not quoting the Bible. But it's better to quote the Bible if you're trying to prove something or show something. And what I want to try to show you from a couple of verses in Philippians 1 is that the reason it is so serious, our depravity is so serious in that we prefer other created things, created things to God is not simply that half of God's purpose is rejected, but All of it is attacked because if you don't delight in him, you don't glorify him. God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Here we are in Philippians 1 verse 20. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now ponder the way the logic works between verses 20 and 21. Do you see the word for at the beginning of verse 21? Verse 20 says, my passion is that Christ would be magnified, honored, glorified in my body in two situations, life and death. So that's the main point of verse 20. Oh, that Christ would be made much of in my body when I die and when I live. I want my living to make much of Christ. I want my dying to make much of Christ. Because he created the universe for his name to be made much of. And then he gives the ground or the explanation of how that happens in verse 21. For to me to live, and that corresponds to life... Is Christ, 
And to die, and that corresponds to death, is gain. And now just take the death pair like this. My desire is that in my body, Christ would be magnified in my death. For to me, to die is gain. How does that logic work? Christ will be magnified in my body, in my death, because in my dying, I experience gain. What's the gain? Verse 23. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. That's the gain. Let me paraphrase it and then you see if you've got this figured out yet. My passion is that my body, my life, my body would magnify him, make much of him, glorify him. That's why he created the world in my death. I want to die in such a way that off my body will shine the value of Jesus Christ. For, this is the way it's going to happen, to me to die. Gain, meaning when I die and lose everything the world has to give, I, I have gain. How can that be? Death means the loss of everything on the earth. I lose my wife. I lose my body for a season. I lose all the pleasures of sex and food and, and friends. And I leave everything behind and call it gain. How, how can that be? And the answer is, I prefer Christ. I'm satisfied with Christ. So that's how he's magnified in my body when I die. Which means Christ is most magnified in me when I'm most satisfied in him. That's my biblical basis for that statement. Here's another one. I'll just give you one more. Matthew chapter 5. You want to see Jesus on this issue? Test and see if you think I'm on the right track here. Because I've got an interpretation here. I can't prove it. Uh, I've, I've not seen it in very many commentaries. But I want to try it on you to see if you uh, agree. I'm working backward from verse 16. Because verse 16 says something I want so bad for my life. I've just got to figure this out. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So now there, shining off of my good works, is the glory of God in such a way that he's getting the credit, not me. How do you do good deeds so that he gets praised and not you? That's huge. How do you do that? That's what verse 16 says. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And then who gets the glory? God. How do they do this? How do they get from your good deeds to God's glory? That's my, that's a huge question for me. I think the answer is in the flow of the text from verse 11 to 16. Let me read it and I'll show you how I'm understanding how this works. I'm, I'm, I'm explaining it. I'm trying to learn to live it. And I hope you'll just try to learn to live it with me. Verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Now stop right there and feel how wildly radical that is. I mean, if he had said, cope. Or endure. Or something a little more reasonable. But he said, you're being persecuted. You're being reviled. They're uttering all kinds of, of evil against you falsely. Rejoice! Don't you just love Jesus? I just love him when he talks like this. 
because he's just over the top. He's just got to be God or he's crazy. So he's telling me to rejoice. And then he tells me how I can do that. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now that does not refer to endless golf in heaven or 72 virgins or endless pizza and diet coke or I'm just listing a few of my favorite things, not the virgins. I've known one virgin. And that's not an exaggeration. Well, I've lost my place. (laughs) All right, here we are, verse 12. I'm trying to figure out where this joy comes from because I'm getting beat up by all this... Slander, and I don't like to be slandered. It's oppressing, it's discouraging, you lose sleep over, and I'm supposed to be happy. And he says it's because of your reward in heaven, and I'm going to argue it's God, it's Jesus. Someday, face to face, no longer through a mirror darkly, we see him for who he is, and he loves us, he's there forever, he's on our side. The greatest person that ever was now, face to face, he's my reward. Full and and clear. Then, without missing a beat, he says, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Let your light shine and God will get glory. Don't let any break come into your mind. Can you put it all together? You're being hated. Instead of returning evil for evil, do the most radical thing this world has ever known. Love your enemy. Bless those who curse you. Rejoice and be glad in that day. Count on your reward in heaven. Put your preference, your satisfaction in Jesus. Be salt and light. And people will glorify him. And don't you know that happens? It's so rare. Here, here's a person who, who is so deeply satisfied in Jesus. Jesus is their all. Christ is all, Paul said. He's their all. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. He's my all. So that your joy doesn't rise and fall merely with the circumstance and being slandered. It's solid. So that in the midst of this, you just keep on doing good deeds. And people are watching this. Here's a person that's being beat up. Here's a person that's being slandered. Here's a person that has every natural reason to be murmuring and angry and complaining and discouraged. And he seems to be above it, riding through it and maintaining a love to do good deeds for others. Where is he getting this satisfaction? There must be God. That's, I think, the logic of verse 16. I think if you follow it through, the salt of the earth and the light of the world is joy in Christ in the midst of suffering. That's the salt and the light. Joy, satisfaction, preference, being satisfied, treasuring, valuing Christ so highly that when everything is going against you in this world, you are not collapsed in murmuring. You are steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord with a certain kind of strength and radiance about you that makes people wonder about where it comes from. And of course, it comes from heaven. It comes from Christ. And they might God willing, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So, I conclude, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. In other words, the glory that God gets in verse 16 comes from the satisfaction referred to in the joy in verse 12. So, those are my two biblical bases. There are others. One from Philippians 1.20 and one from Matthew 5 to explain why I'm operating with the assumption, which is no longer an assumption, but I hope a biblical conviction, that 
The reason it is so serious to be depraved in the sense of preferring anything to God is that it not only nullifies the second half of God's boule, God's purpose, namely that we have maximal joy in him, but also the first half, which is that his glory would shine forth and be displayed because we are attacking his glory when we are not satisfied in him. It might be helpful in drawing to a close to just make a few brief comments about the tea of tulip, Calvinism. What, what do people like me, reform types, Calvinist types, mean by total depravity? And, and this is, of course, an hour long. I'll just give you bullets. I, four things I mean by saying this depravity I've just described is total. What do I mean by that? It could mean all kinds of things. Number one, it means that I'm totally against God. Even when I'm religious. You can use religion as a form of rebellion. And my warrant for saying this is another part of Romans 3, which you're all very familiar with. It goes like this. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. So religion, which poses as seeking God, isn't. It's a means of self-justification. Instead of despairing of ourselves and our depravity and looking away to a substitute whose righteousness and whose death, blood and righteousness are our only hope, we do religious things. And religion becomes part of our rebellion. So we are totally against God until God does the miracle of rebirth. Number two, the meaning of total. Our depravity contaminates the totality of our deeds. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. If you don't do a thing to the glory of God, it's sinful. If you don't live for the glory of God... Everything you do is sinful. So if you build a hospital for AIDS victims in Uganda and you're not a believer, drawing down strength from Christ and doing it for the glory of Christ, sinful to do that. Should be done, but you're sinning in doing it because sin has to do with God. God. It is preferring philanthropy over God. And the kudos that I get for spending all my money that way, that's as much idolatry as a prostitute. Third, there is a total inability to submit to God and prefer him. Many texts, but... 1 Corinthians 2 is one of the clearest. Romans 8, 7 would be another one, but here's... Here's 1 Corinthians 2:14. The natural person, that's the person who's preferring anything over God, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit for their folly to him. He doesn't he's not able to understand them for they are spiritually discerned. He's not able when you are preferring things so much You can't prefer God. There's an inability, a moral inability, and you are totally unable to save yourself. And the the fourth and last piece is we are totally deserving of hell. Let me give you just a sentence that explains why that might be. Consider this. An unalterable bias toward Good does not destroy the praiseworthiness of doing good or being that way. An unalterable bias toward good does not destroy praiseworthiness. Namely, God is unalterably biased toward doing good. He can only do good. And I would ask you, is he praiseworthy for that? He is. Therefore, 
an unalterable bias of heart to prefer bad is blameworthy. And that it is unalterably biased by virtue of the intensity with which it prefers anything but God does not eliminate its blameworthiness, but increases its blameworthiness. So that when I use words like unable, he is so much in love with his sin, he cannot save himself. The cannot there does not get him off the hook. He is totally deserving of punishment. Now, those are my four meanings for total depravity. I close by a very brief word to pastors as to why you should preach these things. Should you preach total depravity? I think Joel Osteen, pastor of the biggest church down in Texas, biggest church in America, uh, was interviewed not too long ago and asked why he doesn't preach on sin. And he admitted that he doesn't and said, our, our people don't need that. It doesn't make them feel good. It doesn't help them succeed, feel good. You can probably find that interview online. So sh- should you follow that counsel or should you preach about your people's and your own sinfulness? Here are the reasons you should and I'll just say them and we'll be done. One, it's in the Bible and very prevalent. And whatever is in Scripture is profitable for the man of God to know and to teach. Number two, a right diagnosis leads to right cures. If you don't know, if people don't know that their problem is that they prefer everything or anything to God, how will they? They'll, they'll, they'll give a quick fix to it. They'll start reading their Bible or start going to church or they'll start, they'll get out of bed with their girlfriend or they just, they clean up their act. It's all they know to do. If you tell them they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, they, but if they don't know the diagnosis is so much deeper than that, they won't. Number three, it makes the grace of God appear more amazing and more cherished. The reason people are not stunned by the grace of God and their own salvation is because they've never felt how inveterately sinful they are every day because they've not been taught well about what sin is. They've grown up in Christian homes. They've never committed adultery. They've never stolen anything. They've never killed anybody. They scratch their head. When have I sinned last? I can't remember when I sinned last. (laughs) And we've all been there. We've all been there. You know, everybody says, let's have just five or ten minutes here of a time of confession. And you're thinking, well, let's see. Listen, if you catch on to what I've said three seconds ago, you were sinning. Did you love him? Did you prefer him? in proportion to his worth, his infinite worth. Do you see how precious the cross becomes for John Piper? I lay my head down every night after 10,000 sins. Everything I do, I must repent of. I love the cross. Number four, it humbles me and helps me fight my pride. That was implicit, I suppose, in number three. Number five, it frees me from the need to deceive myself and put up fronts. Don't you want an authentic church? Don't you just hate hypocrisy? Don't you want reality in your church? Nobody putting up any fronts at all. Well, if you analyze people to the core and show them how utterly, utterly depraved they are, And the whole church is believing how bad they are. And then you relieve them. You give them relief. They don't have to put up anything anymore. You've just laid them totally bare. And an authentic church can happen. And number six, 
It preserves us from many doctrinal errors and false philosophies of life. It is amazing how the ballast of the weight of human depravity, well understood, well considered, well grieved over, and well forgiven in the bottom of the boat of your life and your church keeps it from tipping over and taking water on from all the waves of bad doctrine that crash against it. It's just incredible how a solid, deep, right understanding of how bad I am guards me from a lot of stupid things that are blowing in the wind. And then lastly, number seven, it keeps God at the center of all my life. It preserves a radical God saturation. You've been very attentive for a long time, and I thank you. Let's pray. Father, we just, we just breathe a big, aching sigh of relief. Because even though I haven't preached on the cross, I hope, I hope, that for most of us here, it's just a millimeter beneath the surface of all this talk about our depravity. Where would we be if we didn't have a Savior? Where would we be if we didn't have uh, an imputed righteousness? Where would we be if we didn't have a, a blood sacrifice that bears the awful weight of the punishment we deserve for moment by moment by moment falling short of what you're worthy of? Where would we be without our Savior? So we are putting our faith afresh right now in him. And we're going to gather tomorrow afternoon and ask, how do you do that? What is that? What is faith now in view of all of this? And so, God, please guide us on through all the things that we'll hear in the rest of this conference and take these things down deep. Bless our churches with them. Relieve our hearts. Help us to be honest and authentic with each other. Don't let anyone, I pray, leave this conference without confessing any hidden sin that nobody knows about to somebody or resolving to as soon as they get back. We don't need to hide anything. We want you to be honored as we find our satisfaction in you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.